men don't talk about their feelings. They just don't. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's, it's not in our wiring. I didn't know I was allowed to until I went to treatment. I swear to God, I swear to God, until I went and spent 30 days at that treatment center, I didn't know that I was entitled to those feelings, let alone to share them. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of courageous individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. It's New Year's Eve 2020, and here we are. From Darkness to Life, OCJ, my name is Dave. I'm here with Rob. I'm here with Rick. I'm here with Ryan. Rick and Ryan are the members of OCJ, the founders of OCJ. Rob and I are the producers of this show. And uh, through our conversations, um, I have to admit, I have always felt like the odd man out. Um, In all fairness, you look like the odd man out. I am the odd man out. (laughs) Um, I've come to know these guys fairly well and, and, and listening to their stories and always thinking... I don't get it. I don't understand because I don't have these problems. I don't have addiction. I don't have alcoholism. I don't take drugs. I'm pretty straight. I'm pretty (laughs) narrow and kind of stupid when it comes to this stuff. I also run, I also am the host of a show called Two Fat Morons Save the World. So, I mean, I think that says almost everything about me. How's it going, guys? It's awesome, man. Going great. It's going Glad when this fucking year ends. <laughs> well, we've got you do that that Ramon song, 20, 20, 24 hours to go. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. wanna be sedated. I saw you post that today. <laughs> That's good. I, I have to admit I was humming that song in my head reading that. There you go, yeah. Um we had a conversation today about, you know, what kind of a show are we gonna do today? Cause uh things kind of fell apart and our original ideas aren't going to happen yet. We're, we've still got that in the, on the, on deck for, uh, for some time in the future. But, um, but through chatting, um, I was kind of saying, well, I am the odd man out because I don't have these problems. I don't really understand and always kind of was on the outside of this whole group because I am the one person in this room that hasn't had these problems. And, can't really relate to it. So I think what we want, what we kind of discussed talking about today was what is addiction and how do you describe these problems to people who don't understand? What did you say, Rick? 92%. Yeah. I have no idea where I'm pulling these statistics out of, but I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that it was like 8% of the population represents addicts, whether it be drug, whether it be, Gambling, booze, sex, whatever, right? right? It's approximately 8%. So that leaves, you know, and I think with the OCJ thing and, and with our podcast platform, you know, we're really trying to speak to that 8%. And then when you speak up and you're like, yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't really have anything to offer. It's like, no, no, no. Like you, you represent 92% of the audience. Yeah. We really only represent eight. So I think this is where, this is where the whole fucking thing comes together right is is we're trying to get everybody to get it and it's not it's not the perception you think you have it's it's not the stereotypical drug addict homeless guy no no and it's opening that dialogue 
You know, it's, it's, it's opening these conversations. And I mean, like we talked about when we were talking earlier, like an addict can, can share glory stories all day long with another addict and, and relate, um, you know, and you know, the reality is, is in some of our conversations in, in sitting, you know, in, in business meetings and stuff and, and the, the look when, you know, Dave's looking across at us and you can see that like he doesn't relate and he doesn't understand. And, and so to me, like that's the beauty of, of, of you guys and what you're doing is, is breaking out these conversations and, you know, and, and, you know, when you can break out and reach the, the people that, that don't understand addiction, that don't have the, the personal relation, you know, with addiction, however that may look to me, that's winning. Like that's, that's, that's where the world needs to be. Um, you know, even listening to Dave's intro, I can, I can, you know, I'm sitting here playing in my mind and I, I can think of a time in my life where I thought, you know, man, how amazing would that feel like to, to, to be that person that's never experienced, you know, addiction in, in any way, shape or form. Um, but then, you know, the reality is, is when you, when you understand addiction and especially for, for those of us that have, you know, been lucky enough to, to come out of it alive and, you know, it was a lot of work. But the reality is, is I, I feel more blessed now in life because I've seen both sides. Um, it, it's allowed me to become a more understanding person um, in dealing with other humans because I've seen both sides. And, and there's nothing that I love more than the opportunity than sharing with a person that's never experienced, you know, these addiction issues that, um, you know, we've all gone through. Uh, and enlightening them into that world. Because, you know, again, the average person, you know, we talked about this earlier, the average person, you know, we associates addiction, you know, like that's not me, that's not my family, that's not my friends, or you might have that one friend, you know. Chances are you might have known a couple more people in, in high school that that, that related as that person. But, you know, you, know, you, you see that you get that image in your head of, you know, the attic is the person that's, you know, downtown hanging out in, in front of the one store downtown because every, every town has that downtown and that one place where some of those people hang out. But the reality is, is that's a very, 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 very small portion of, of what this is. For sure. You know? Well, yeah. I, th I think a good point that you made was, uh, well, you, you can speak to it with, um, the definition of the disease being a disease and the, and it not being. Yeah, for sure. And just to touch on, I pulled up some quick stats. So you're, you're fairly close, but over the span of somebody's life here, it says in Canada, it's estimated that approximately 21% of the population will have a substance abuse disorder. That's roughly 6 million people. So, I mean, that's a massive, massive number in this country alone, right? That's not in the world, but my God, we're all going to know somebody who's, if you don't already, somebody's going to know somebody who has a substance use disorder, right? Which is addiction. You're not far off from it. Well, but, I've, uh, I've known, I, I know people that have these problems. And, and I think from, you know, through our conversations, <laughs> I've got to say, drums. if you can hear the drums with this podcast <laughs> studio, we built it above a music store, which in hindsight was probably the worst mistake possible. So if you hear uh, the drums playing downstairs, that's yeah. what we're hoping to remedy or the situation, if right, any Rick? Of us laughing too much, it's Rob <laughs> dancing in the corner to the drums. That's right. <laughs> Let me just reiterate that Rob doesn't dance. <laughs> Not in a long time, anyway. 
Um, But just before you start, Dave, I was going to talk about what Rick was saying. Yeah. And we'd discuss this lots, right? And I heard this not long ago that, you know, the, the disease of addiction, everybody hears about this concept, the disease and what we always hear, like it's a choice. It's a moral failure. It's not a disease. It's this or that. Right. But once I got educated around it, yeah, it's a disease. It is classified in the DSM five in the diagnostic manual as a disease now, right? It checks all the boxes. Um, but it's different than most diseases that are out there like cancer and, and diabetes, whatever you have, right. Or whatever is out there. It's, it's the only disease that tells us we don't have a disease and anyone who's actively in addiction or in recovery knows that portion of that disease concept tells us we don't have a disease. It's the only disease that cannot be diagnosed officially by a doctor. And it's the only disease that continually tells us that we don't have a disease. So, you know, to try to get somebody motivated to a look at, they may have a problem and B, what do we do about this problem? Uh, You know, that's where the obstacle is because we don't, when you're in the, in the height of addiction, you guys can recognize this and relate to it. I didn't think I had a problem. I thought I was normal. You know, the world was the problem. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of spurred on this conversation earlier, right? Is, is Dave, you made a comment about willpower, right? And, like, it's got nothing to fucking do with willpower. Like, nothing at all, right? It's It, it overrides every fucking possible mechanism that, of my brain to use, to get more, to keep, like, I am, I am drinking and using drugs against my will. Mm -hmm. I know that it is detrimental. I know that it'll ultimately end in death. And guess what? I'm (laughs) fucking doing it anyway. For sure. I think that's part of the misconception. And, and, and as you labeled me a normie, a normie, (laughs) I'll take that, I guess I'll take normie as my title. Um, you, you know, the question is always, well, I choose, and I, I drink. I mean, I, I consume alcohol for pleasure as, as I see fit. Sometimes maybe a little too much, but I don't <laughs> consider myself an alcoholic. And I've always heard that, well, if you, don't, if you don't have a problem or if you admit you don't have a problem, you probably have a problem. But there's <laughs> got to be people out there that don't have a problem. So I, I don't think it affects my life at all. Um, but, the, but the questions are always... You make the choice to put that drink to your mouth or to put that needle in your arm or to, to put that doobie to your mouth or whatever. It's just a simple matter of not doing it, of, of just saying, this is a drink. I know it's hurting me. I'm not just not going to have it. And peer pressure and kind of all of that stuff. I understand, you know, I understand that kind of thing too. But it's, I guess it's the label of a disease that most normies don't really understand how can it be a disease you know because you know you you have cancer or you have diabetes you take drugs for it and it's a physical thing and you know you you fix yourself with that or or control it mm-hmm. but addiction is a choice to put that drink to your mouth that you can just not do so i think a really good comparison and i i have never made this comparison until about 20 minutes ago when we were having this conversation was um, with Tourette's, right? Tourette's is a known disease. It, it affects people, but ultimately it's, it's a compulsion disorder, right? And I, I'm sure I'm butchering the terminology and the proper words to describe things. But Beauty of a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Won't be the first thing we butcher. <laughs> no, shit, no. Um, but it, it ultimately is a compulsion disorder, right? Like 
something in my brain, and, and I can't speak for this because I have no experience. It's just my observation, right? But um, something in my brain is, is, is forcing me to say and do things. You know, it starts with a, a twitch or a tick, right? And it turns into, and I don't know if it turns into or if it just, sometimes it is in some matters it is uh, a vocalized, you know, it's swearing. Everybody's got their preconceived notions of what Tourette's is, right? But it's a disease and it's a compulsion disorder. So uh, against my will, you know, I, I'm doing something that I don't want to do. And it's not, it, it's got nothing to do with will, the willpower. It, it just, it, it is, it's going to happen. And it's, it's impossible. Well, I shouldn't say it's impossible, but it's, it's the hardest thing in the world. And, and, and I've talked and I've talked about it extensively too, if, um, you know, the, a really, uh, in hindsight, a really eye-opening thing for me, and it's kind of what brings me to this table. Um, I was sitting in an ADAC counselor's office without being able to make it a day without drugs or alcohol and wanting to kill myself, sitting in a professional's office and sitting in that office, knowing full well that I couldn't make it through a day without drugs or alcohol and wanting to kill myself. I wouldn't have said I had a drug or alcohol problem and I wouldn't have said I had a mental health issue. So how did you come to be in the office? Somebody else's observations. Somebody, but someone made you go. I mean, it, I mean, it happens some, all the time with, with, with you know, it, it, employment all over the place, especially, you know, a lot of these guys working in, you know, out here in Alberta, you know, working in the oil field and the pipeline in a lot of these things. Um, you know, it's not cut and dry in the sense, you know, a lot of these, you know, the vast majority of these people um, that are, you know, active in addiction, they're not bad people. And so employers don't want to get rid of them, but they have to have company policies in place sure. to, to be able to save them as a business. And so, you know, they have procedures that say, okay, you know, you've showed up to work, you know, drunk, high, however it may be, this is what we need you to do. You know, we care about you. We, and, you know, you need to go to ADAC or, you know, whatever that avenue may be. Because this is a general rule. Like, even what you were alluding to in the beginning there, in talking about Tourette's, you know, it starts with a tick and it goes from there. You know, addiction generally doesn't start out, you know, full-blown. Like, there's an evolution to that as well. And so, you know, it's, it's all very relative to, to anything in life, really. How did you come, Rick? to be in that ADAC office? Uh, my father-in-law recognized that I was suicidal. And, right. And uh, he, br he brought me to that office. So for me, it was more of uh, a box I was checking before I was checking yeah. out, really. <laughs> is, is what so was. he was sitting there beside you and said, you're sitting here, you're going to talk to somebody whether you think you need to or not. Well, no, I, well, kind of. He, he drove me there and... Uh, Actually, I don't even remember if he fucking drove me or if it was just a conversation we had that led me there. A little foggy back oh, then. Oh, yeah, man. It was, it, was a <laughs> dark, it was a dark time. I can imagine, though, if you had the conversation and said, yeah, 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 I'll go, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will. Like, maybe. No, I fully remember because, like, that's what got me thinking about it. He wasn't sitting beside. Nobody was sitting beside me. And I'm sure in hindsight, like, I must have had a lot of conversations in my mind walking up there to not go in the door. Cause I know I was by myself. Somebody drove me there and, uh, 
left me outside, like stayed in a vehicle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? And like, yeah, I, it's actually crazy to think about it because for the amount of lying and manipulating I did, why I wouldn't have just said, you know, went inside and sat down and went out the front door and had a dart or something and <laughs> came back out the back door and went, yeah, yeah I, I did it. It's all good. So, so what did keep you there then? Because Beats it would be, out of me, you man. don't know. I think, uh, grace. Yeah. So, something. Maybe the, the, you know, absolutely. There had to be, I can, I can relate and understand, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that, you know, are in active addiction and as well as, you know, in recovery that, that can relate. And like, I wouldn't say I put a ton of thought into, Oh my gosh, I need to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you definitely hear voices, you know, people, loved ones, whatever saying you should probably stop doing this or whatever, or your bank account saying like, you can't keep this up or <laughs> whatever it may be. But I would have never ended up um, at the Foothills Detox Center had it not been from what essentially was a stranger. Um, uh, a girl I was dating at the time, uh, her sister, um, I showed up at her sister's house at like two in the morning and I just kind of decided that like I was done and I needed help and they were the first people that I could think of to say I, I need help because I knew it wasn't it wasn't my house. It wasn't the the girl that I was dating at the time and you know the the her children that I was helping raise. It wasn't my house. So I could go to somebody else's house. And it happened to be the guy that she was dating and he had, you know, some experience in in recovery kind of thing. He was a, a guy just like, you know, you guys with OCJ. And he was like, I know just the thing. You're you're going to detox, you know, sleep on the couch for a couple hours and and I'll take you. And I had no idea where he was taking me and you know, to sleep on the couch for a couple hours seemed like a really good idea at the time. And I got up and he drove me to to uh, Fort McLeod to Foothills Detox Center where they begin to save my life. But you had decided at that point, you have a problem. I need help. <laughs> I I truly I didn't really see or understand an option beyond what was being presented in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of in the same manner as being an addiction. Um, you know, you can think throughout the entire day or week, like I'm going to stop or that's been enough for today or whatever. And somebody else shows up with, you know, with, you know, another case of beer or, or more drugs or whatever it may be. And now you're carrying on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt the same about recovery in the sense that this person had taken their time to drive me, you know, an hour up the road to drop me off at a detox center where I knew absolutely no one or nothing and time to face this head on just like I had everything else. And, you know, it was just one foot in front of the other and doing as, you know, what was, you know, being presented to me by these people that seemed to, you know, have a better life going for them than I had going at the time. And it allowed me, you know, other avenues to to start opening up and, getting to the point in life where, you know, I'm alive today. So, so I guess, you know, are people born addicts? I mean, you, you know, I know a lot of people who like to go and party on the weekends and, you know, they, they go and they have a rip up and, you know, get shit faced and Monday morning they go back to work and it's nothing else. And then the next weekend they'll go and have a rip up and, you know, or, or once a month or however often, but at what point or what are this, the telltale signs that say, you know, I, I like to have fun with my friends and we do that with alcohol or we do that with drugs, but I don't have a problem. At what point do you say, this is, this is a fucking problem. This needs to be fixed. So 
it's been explained to me, and you, well, you're the professional. You can probably answer better than I can. But just for a little background, Ryan, you are a a, a social worker, right? You, oh, geez, no, no, I'm sorry. Calling names. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? So, what is addictions your counselor? Addictions counselor. Yeah. Pardon <laughs> me again. I'm, I'm a normie. Okay, that's okay. That won't be the first time. That, that's <laughs> it won't all be right. the first time I stick my foot <laughs> in my mouth. Good, buddy. That's what I'm good at. It, it was explained to me that it, you know it. You can ask yourself or be asked two, two simple questions to determine whether or not this is a problem for you, whether or not you're a hard drinker or because like it's got fuck all to do with how much you drink or how often, right? Or, or drugs or whatever, right? It was, it was explained to me that it's two simple questions. When you start, do you know how this is going to end? And when you try to stop, can you stay stopped? Two simple questions. Do you mean stopping for the night or do you mean stopping at all? Either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I mean, it, it's not like, and and the the piece that kind of trips people up is like, well, I've stopped before, right? And and because I would, I I was able to stop for a couple of days for at sure. a time if I needed to, but what happens in that time and space is fucking terrifying. the The thoughts that go through my brain, uh, it's really really hard. It, it became really clear that it was hard to function without it. Mm-hmm. I could, but it wasn't fucking pretty, right? And, and as for, so the first, like, you know, if we go through this piece by piece, right? First question, when you start, do you know how it's going to end? Sometimes, you know, there, there was days that I could have one or two, but the vast majority of it, the vast majority of it, once I started, I was no longer in control of how that was going to play out. It, it, it went on autopilot, right? And I actually remember... You know, when it, when, when everything first started coming together and well, not coming together, coming out, I guess, falling apart is a better <laughs> way of putting it. Um, I remember trying to explain to my wife how, how it was and how it worked. Right. And I used the, um, I used the story of Jekyll and Hyde. Right. And it was, it, it was like two voices and two personalities. Like I remember waking up in the morning going, I fucking hate you for the shit that I did the night before, for the things that I, the positions I put myself in, the money I spent, the, the behavior that I, you know, the fight that I got, whatever the fuck it was. Right. And then still somehow this other thing takes over and starts and it railroads me. Right. And, uh, and, and I use that example a lot of times, Jekyll and Hyde. And then I did some research. The fucking author was an addict. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was. It he was, was describing his, himself. It was his story of addiction, right? And it's mm-hmm. and, it, and it, that's what it is. It's this beast inside of me that once I fucking feed that thing, like the only way to keep that thing subdued is to keep it completely subdued. Like there's no, there's no safe amount of drugs or alcohol I can consume and stay in control of that. Well, and how did, how did, how did Dr. Jekyll turn into Mr. Hyde? He drank a potion, right? Right. Yeah. That fucking potion. (laughs) But I mean, like, you know, I drank a potion or two in my life. (laughs) I mean, but it's, it's that age old saying, right? Like one is not enough and two is too many, right? Like it's for sure. I think there's so many, so many avenues with this. Like it's, it's, it's also relatable. Like, I'm glad you, you mentioned that, like, you know, like for lots of people, it's, it's fine. It's, it's, it's okay. But lots of people, it's not. And I think it, I think it's relevant to anything in life. It's not just drugs or alcohol. Um, you know, like there's, there's a reason why there's, you know, Overeaters Anonymous and all these other groups that are out there, you know, like I, I sit and think about it like a pizza. Um, you know, most people 
like pizza, you know, mm, exactly. <laughs> but so, so the question, you know, becomes in that manner, you know, if you ordered a pizza, can you tell yourself that I'm only going to eat two slices or, or once that pizza box is open, you know, does your brain tell you that you have to eat that entire pizza? It, you know, to me, sure. to me, that's, you know, a lot of how I can, a, a very simple way of relating, you know, the addiction of drugs and alcohol. You know, lots of people can pick up that, open that pizza and say like, okay, I'm having two slices. That's it. Box is closed. Put it away. Yeah. And then there's other people that you open that box, that, that box isn't getting closed until it's completely empty. Absolutely. Oh, I open a bottle of whiskey, throw the fucking cap away, man. Yeah. There's no, no, no need for that. And but, that's where I have a hard time understanding the concept of pizza by the slice. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm like, how do they make a go of that? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. And that was like, same as alcohol, right? We've talked about this lots that if I, when I was drinking, if I had two beer in the fridge, those were the safest two beer on the face of this planet because I was not touching them. I wasn't drinking them for the taste or What's the refreshment the or there's just not enough, right? No, Is that, I, yeah, absolutely. But if there was 18 in there, that's a good start. And I'm going to get after yeah. Like you said, one's too many and a thousand's never enough, right? If, if I have that one beer, there better be a super B of cocaine following that because I know I'm not far off from that as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And listening to you tell your two criterias, right? There's scientific data and that's from the DSM five and you covered a lot of them. One of them is you know, trying to stop using or cutting down on your use and not being able to, that's one tick box for you. And that's the, the diagnostic tools that you'll get when you go into AHS. What's DSM-5? Yeah. What is that? It's a, it's a diagnostic manual, uh, from the American Psychiatric Association. So they have five volumes of it now. And recently, I can't remember now, don't quote me if it was DSM-4 or DSM-5, that they actually recognize substance use disorder as a disease now. So, so, so it's a, it's a, it's a tool that uh, you, you guys use as an addiction counselor to. Well, not so much me, but psychiatrists, like it's okay. from the medical field, right? So okay. any psychiatrist is going to have a DSM five. We have them in our office. I'm not saying I peruse it very often, but. Some light reading. Yeah. Just some light reading when I'm bored, but no, it, there's 11 check boxes for criteria for substance okay. use disorder. And almost all of the ones we talk about right now are in there in more scientific language or okay. more formal language, but they're all in there, right? One of the biggest ones for me that it stands out for me is continued use despite all negative consequences. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that, right? Like I knew for a fact I was going to blow my life up if I kept using, but that wasn't enough to get me to stop using. I feel that way with Pepsi right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> like honestly, I, I'm not even joking. For sure. To me, it's just as relatable. Sounds like you're an addict. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. My name is Rob and I am an addict. Right. And I, Coming into like another one of them is when you, you know, let's say for me, it was, I love playing hockey, right? But the more I got down that rabbit hole of addiction, that went to the wayside. When you stop doing all the social events and all the, all the community focused connection pieces in your life, because addiction starts to overwhelm and be heavier on your life than that, more important, that's another tick box for you. Mm -hmm. And there's 11 of them, right? And, if, and you don't have to tick off all 11, but if you start ticking off five or six of those, you really should start looking at, <laughs> and now I look back and I definitely ticked off all 11 and you don't even have to answer because I know you did. And I'm sure you did as well. hundred <laughs> percent. But I mean, to me, that's the easy part uh, in a sense is, 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 is ticking those boxes. I mean, as a general rule, especially when I was in the height of my, my, you know, addiction, uh, it's not me checking that box right. or it's not me figuring out that, that, I fit into this category or that category. Chances are, you know, 
a great majority of people around me that, that loved me did notice those things and recognize those things. But you know, like that's the, that's the scary part about addiction, but that's to me is the beauty of, of these conversations that you guys are starting with our collective journey. You know, the average addict doesn't realize that they're an addict. For I sure. mean, don't get me wrong. Lots of people are pretty aware that things have become a problem, but generally yeah. you're not the first person to become aware of it. It's, it's the loved ones around you that, that notice that you're not giving, you know, the family, the attention or, or things are tougher at work or, you know, you're bringing this home with you or, you know, they're the ones that find these problems. You know, a, a, addiction has a, a, a beautiful way of kind of, fogging over those those glasses so that you only see what you want to see right i think it's a really important piece to say you know to all the normies that might be listening right is is i've been i've been pretty vocal about my recovery i've been pretty vocal about my substance use and and uh for for several years now right and uh i i get asked a lot of times i get approached by other people about people they're concerned about and they're like hey my brother's an alcoholic or, or my brother's a drug addict or, you know, maybe not brother, whatever. And, and I've got to check them a lot of times and go like you, I, I don't get to define what makes you an addict or an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Neither do you as an outsider looking in, you could just be uh, like, I know plenty of guys that can drink a case of beer a day and do, and I wouldn't classify them as an alcoholic. They just like to drink. Right. And it's, it's not so much what you do, like for me, what happens when you take that stuff away from me? Right. And I've said it in this room. I've said it a million times in a million places, drugs and alcohol were not my problem. They were my solution. Mm -hmm. When you take that away from me, shit gets really, really, really bad and really, really, really dark really quickly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's, it's even harder for for loved ones or spouses or, or mothers or fathers w- watching something happen and going, trying to label stuff. I don't think you can. I think that's a, that's a conclusion that somebody needs to come to themselves. Right. hundred oh, percent. And I remember, I, I remember, you know, even one of the criteria, right. Once I stopped, can I stay stopped? And I remember to prove to myself, I didn't have a problem. I put myself on a 28 day abstinence program. Once, (laughs) once, right. And that was, and that was, and that was to prove, cause I was like, okay, well, a a program's Mm -hmm. typical residential programs, 28 days. I'm like, if I can go 28 days, I'm good. Right. And I, I was sitting at the bar with fucking drinks and blow lined up, like literally counting down to the minute when my 28 days was literally to the minute. And like, fuck, once that 28 days hit, like, boom, party's on. And I got fucked up for days. Mm -hmm. But you made that 28 days. But I made it, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't in a good fucking place. I damn near killed, I was homicidal and suicidal for 28 fucking days. Like that's the beauty and the curse of of all of this is it's all relative. Every single person's story is, is relative to that person in that story. You know, like I, I, I don't think by, by saying what I said, you know, I meant that you know, it's going to be your 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 loved ones that are going to you know label you as an addict, but generally they're going to be the ones that notice things aren't the norm. You know, before you do, for sure. And and they're the ones that um, they, they paid the fucking price for sure. Yeah, and I mean a lot of it. A lot of times they're the ones that are you know listening to 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 a show like this right now, right? Because I I can promise you. That in in the time of my addiction, 
I can tell you how many podcasts I ever listened to. Absolutely. You know, I did not need extra voices in the room. <laughs> you know, just, just the reality of it, so right? True. So, you know, that's where, like I said, you know, and I continue to say, like, I love what you guys are doing with this Our Collective Journey stuff and, and normalizing these conversations and, and being able to speak to those, um, not just the, the addicts, but... Uh, What's the new term? Normies, but the normies, normies I guess too. So, uh, you know, it, it, it that's what makes this magical. What what our collective journey is doing is is these conversations need to become normalized, so people sure. aren't as afraid to to speak about these topics because they they shouldn't be taboo topics. Absolutely, and it, you know, going back to what you said on the twenty eight day stretch that you you made this deal with yourself. <laughs> my mind instantly went to what did day 29 look like, oh. right? Because what was really interesting is what happened the day before day one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's where I, as you're telling the story, I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, what, for lack of a better term, you know, I can, I can remember back in the day, you know, before friends were heading off to jail to do their, to do their bit. And, you know, you, you always had a packing party the night before kind of thing. Right. And everybody hung out and it was, it was a shit show. For and sure. Uh, because he knew that tomorrow he was going to court and totally probably like, not coming back for a while. Day one and day 29. That's like what the movies are made about. Yeah. Right. Day, but day one. It's funny through, you say that because day one, I was in court. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> day one through 28, like people on the outside are like, oh, he's not drinking. He's doing great. Right. The, the movie should be filmed in your head on those days. Oh, fuck. Because it's that obsession and compulsion, which is also one of the other criteria, right? But Anyone who hasn't been in active addiction doesn't know the power of that obsession and compulsion to use, right? We may not be using, but our mind is there the whole time. So those 28 days are hell. You're looking ahead. You're glorifying the past on how high you used to get and all how, I, you know, for me, it was like, it just put everything into perspective. It, it shut the world off. And day 29 for me, my, my entire mind would be consumed by every day until day 29, mm -hmm. even though I'm not drinking and using mm -hmm. and looks good on the outside. But man, my head would be a circus. <laughs> yeah, survival mode. Yeah. yeah. It's easy as a normie, as a normie, I use finger quotes, <laughs> to, to look down on, I mean, every, everyone in, you know, can drive downtown and the Tim Hortons downtown has, you know, people that just, you just know are either strung out or, you know, or you drive by the, you know, the, uh, 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 the inner city, the inner city center or whatever in a town and you just think oh they're they're all hanging out there or whatever you know the the normies look down there on there they are there they are <laughs> but how do you dis, how do you change the perspective like when i see somebody who's clearly strung out all i think of is that's like get away from me because you're a no good um drain on society you're a you, you know a, a no gooder right um who should either just do it until you're no longer a problem or, you know, go get yourself some help and, and become a normal person in society. Like how do you change people's perspective on, on how they see these people? I, for, for me, I think a big piece is why do we got to wait till that? Mm -hmm. Like, for sure. you know, um, absolutely. You know, there's no denying that, that 10% of the addict population that is homeless, that is destitute, that is living out of shelters. and But that's only the visible. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's people that have gone that far down. Why do we not identify this shit until, like, why are we, 
why are we so hesitant to label, maybe label is the wrong word, but identify those issues before it gets to that point? I guess this is what my goal for OCJ is, for our collective journey, is early intervention, right? I, I was on a path that was going to lead me one of two places, either to be that 10% or suicide. Mm-hmm. I recognized the path I was on and I didn't want to become that 10%. So I was leaning towards suicide, but why do we have to get to the, one of those two destinations mm-hmm. before we, before we take some action? Right. So to me, these podcasts, this venue, this, this thing that we're trying to do is to try to reach that 90% that is still functioning. And I use air quotes for that in society, right? The functioning alcohol, well, the, the, the functioning th- addict, right? Like the salespeople working, you know, working day to day, the, the, the business owners, you know, throughout our community, the, the taxi cab drivers trying to keep up to things like there's, it, it's everywhere. Like that's the problem is it's easy to, you know, recognize gum when it's under your shoe. You know, it's, it's kind of like when you, you know, it's easy to, to, to consider addiction, you know, those few people that are sitting downtown when the reality is, is the vast majority of, of, of addiction isn't seen or known. It's the, it's the everyday people that you come across that you have no idea what their story is or was or will be. But the, the, the world is run by normies. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, visibly, right? But the, you're the, only the, a normie until, and, and, until you recognize that, you know, there's an issue there, right? Like, or, or the money is controlled by normies. Well, or, I think a big thing is the guilt and shame attached to it, mm-hmm. right? Because I think the perception still is, this is a disease of willpower or lack of willpower. Right. So for me to admit to being an alcoholic, it's yeah. I'm, I'm admitting to being weak. I'm admitting yeah. to being a failure, right? So there's so much guilt and shame attached to that, that I'll be fucking dead before I admit to that. Whereas like if, if we can, if we can break down, you know, and I hate the word stigma, it's such a catch word right now. Right. But if we can break that down and be like, listen, man, this, this isn't a matter of willpower. It isn't a matter of you making poor choices. This is a, an, an un, unrelenting compulsion that mm-hmm. you cannot outrun. You mm-hmm. cannot hide. You need to face it. You need to deal with it. And if we can, if, if we can make it okay to identify as like, nobody's going to shit on somebody for being diagnosed with cancer or think like you made some shitty choices. Yeah. Right. But like to come out as an addict or an alcoholic is like, there's this perception of guilt and shame attached to it. And it's like, no man, you, you've just got an illness. Right. And, and we need to deal with that illness. And there's, there's a means of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you know, I don't, I don't want to say medication, but there's, there's a, there's things you can do to overcome this. And as long as you try to outrun it and try to hide from it and, and think you don't have it. You complicate it. You're fucked. I, I, one of the biggest blessings that I found and, and it was a real surprise to me in recovery was, um, I mean, I'm not a shy guy. So like to talk about, you know, anything is, is, is pretty much on the table with me. And, and so to be able to, present myself in that manner, you know, coming out of things as a, a, an addict in recovery, I was amazed at how understanding the world was to me, um, coming out of that, you know, like to, in anybody I dealt with on a day to day, um, when, when I could be open enough to say like, even, even the people that I wronged, 
to say like, look, like, I'm sorry, you're right. I screwed up. My apologies. You know, addiction kind of took over in my life. And when you're able to have those conversations, that that changed the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was astounded at at how receptive people were when when you can accept because you've because you've made the effort, you had the strength, you went and did the recovery, you made the effort to to, to clean up, yeah. and people can recognize that. But you know how scary that is when you're oh, in yeah. in addiction and stuff like that. That's your biggest 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 fear. But when you're laying, Being found out, right? <laughs> and I'll tell you, like I'm, you know, I'm six foot three and two hundred and seventy five pounds. Uh, you know, I like to eat. There isn't a whole lot that tastes worse than trying to swallow your pride. You know, it was one of the scariest things in the world. I'll take that but pizza. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. That you know, it was you. the the hardest step of that entire process was swallowing my pride to to do what I needed to mm-hmm. do. Um, but nothing led to you know greater abundance in my life than than surrendering to that. And but it's when you're laying in that back alley with a with a needle out of your you know sticking out of your arm, and people walk by and they say, "Oh, there's a piece of shit." addict, mm-hmm. you know, scourge of society. I mean, that's the stigma that has to be broken. What do you do even in, in, in your regular life? If you know, I mean, I've had friends that have, that I've known have had problems, but I felt helpless. I, I've had friends that have contemplated suicide, um, that actually tried suicide. But at the same time, I feel helpless because it's none of my business or because if I push it, a, I might be wrong. I mean, I wasn't in, in this case, but if I push it or I say you need help or I create this intervention, all of a sudden I'm the piece of shit, right? Like mind your own fucking business. This is my life, blah, 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 blah. Here's, What's more important to you? Yeah, but, but here's, pe- here's a simple question. Would you rather force that hard conversation or attend a funeral? I understand that. I understand that. Um, at the same time, it's just nobody wants to have conflict. And most... As far as I understand it, if, if, if I knew somebody that was having a problem, but they didn't recognize that they were having the same problem and I pushed the issue, there goes the friendship, right? It's like, just leave me alone, shut the door, done. Mm-hmm. And you tried, but we're slammed. That's where I think high school messes with a lot of people. <laughs> because honestly, you know, I feel like, you know, as, as, as you, you speak in this, in this manner, you know, like it, it, it's that high school mentality that because we've all gone through, you know, high school. Well, I, I guess not everyone has gone through <laughs> high school, but attempt. Uh, maybe. Yeah, some of us attempted to attend there, but it, you know, it's a it's a pretty common experience that 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 people had, and so it, it's very scarring on a lot of people in sure. in the manner that you're afraid of of of, of offending that person or or creating that conflict in or that ruining that friendship because of a conversation and when the reality is, is, you know, when you sit back and look at it and take the high school out of it, you know, at this point in life, like we're all grown adults that, that, you know, pay rent or mortgages. We have, you know, vehicles, we have bills, we establish life as a mature adult. And so that conversation is only amplified to become scary because of, of high school trauma in a sense. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is, you know, we're all adults here and, and you have the ability to have that conversation. Can feelings get hurt? Absolutely. Is there ways to have those conversations without being, you know, directly hurtful? A hundred percent. 
Um, are they difficult conversations? Without a doubt. But again, like, like, you know, Rick said, you know, would you rather attend a, a funeral or have conflict? Or, or do you, or, or do you be hurtful with the, you know, the, the, the iron fist and the velvet glove type of a thing? I mean, you have to, you know, you know when does tough love become, you know, it's like you, I know you say you don't have a problem, but I think you do have a problem and I'm going to push this on you until either we're not friends anymore or, or you know, you get fixed. I can, I can think of a specific situation with a, a woman in my circle, social circle life, um, exhibited every single sign that as an addict I identified as, and again, I can't label mm -hmm. no. anything for anybody else. No. But in this scenario, I think I probably did, right? I think I went like, listen, I love you. And I'm saying this because I love you, yeah. but you've got a problem and there is a solution and I'm here to help. Please reach out. Please don't take this as a, an offense and as a failure. It's, it's coming from a place of love. I love you. I love your family. I want to see you succeed. I don't want to see you have to go where I went. And from there, it is what it is. Yeah. Right. And, and to be honest with you, that woman hasn't spoken to me since. And mm -hmm. it's almost a year and maybe she never will, but maybe that seed's planted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right? what my mind But goes. in that year, was there an effect of that conversation or did it just, I have no idea, no idea. nor but, is that for me to determine. No, I was just going to say, and that's, that's got nothing to do with me. No, for sure. No, once you said what you have to say, that's for the other person to digest and deal with. Right. And, you know, understand that this isn't a, it's not a one conversation scenario you know if you're willing if you're concerned about your friend and you're willing to debate having this conversation and you're afraid of you know conflict or not understand that that this isn't going to be a one conversation scenario if you love that friend enough that you're concerned uh, about how this conversation may go then you also need to be able to tell yourself that this isn't a short road mm -hmm. you know the if, if I'm willing to, to help that friend that I feel has uh, an issue going on, there can't necessarily be parameters around that, that, that offer of help. Uh, as much as you're always going to need to protect yourself, it's not a, well, I talked to him today and, you know, that's that. It's, or everything you know, seemed fine and it's like, oh, well, maybe I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And yeah. because, you, because, because you've on this podcast, Rick, you've said it many times, you know, people with addictions are Academy Award winning performers. Oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. You know, so when you have a, a, a friend or a, a family member who puts on real good airs and then you don't hear from them for a long time or they keep putting off, you know, seeing you or putting off family functions and they go to work and they go home and you just know that there's something wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at what point, and this turns another corner, at what point do you initiate the intervention, <laughs> right? Is that a thing anymore? I mean, is that a, even a, a thing that, that happens or a, a good thing to happen, right? The tough love thing. Well, I mean, like there's, there's simpler things like, you know, and, and, and fairly anonymous ways too. Like a lot of people don't realize that if you're truly concerned about a, a friend at, you know, in their home or wherever, you can call your local police and, and, and have what's simply known as a, a welfare check done. 
And that doesn't tell, you know, when the police show up to, to check on them and take a look around, they don't say, oh, well, you know, Dave called me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not what it is. It's, you know, they, they've got a call. Someone is concerned with, with their well-being. Um, and they're there to look at it. And the police don't have better things to do than just Shit. go checking on random people. Like, will they go right away? Or like, what's the priority that they put on these kind of calls? Well, I think it probably comes down. Rick, Rick deals more with the, I guess both of you guys really do. Yeah. I think it comes down to what their schedule looks like that yeah. day, right? What's mm-hmm. going on? What's on the plate. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. But mm-hmm. I know that for a fact, I've been part of some of those wellness checks with the police service and, you know, in my experience, going to do those with them or hearing about them, they've been very beneficial. I mean, there's times when they could turn sideways, right? But by having some trained mental health and addiction police officers, which they do now, I mean, there's a good percentage of people that are getting help through the police service. I, I do think though, and you know, you're, you're in a better place to correct me. I, I do think that once you're at that point, yeah, that we're talking about a police wellness check, we're, we're pushing that 10%, right? for sure. that yeah. homeless 10%. Yeah. I think what you're talking about is that 90% of that person that you care about, that you think has a problem, but you're not really sure they haven't quite burnt their life to the ground. But and you something... don't want to be wrong about it. Right. I, that's a much harder conversation yeah, to for have, sure it is. right? And I think it just comes from a place of honesty. Mm-hmm. I think you need to be willing to lose whatever that is, mm-hmm. right? Whatever that relationship is. Because at the end of the day. If, what's, what's worth more, your friendship or their life? Well, yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, if, if somebody's offended to the point that they don't want to be your friend anymore because you're exhibiting concern for their well-being. What friend were they? Well, they probably got a fucking problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whether, you know, a, a healthy person in a healthy mindset will take that, appreciate it and be like, dude, I like, I'm, I'm genuinely good. You know, they'll, they'll initiate that. They'll mm-hmm. respond to that. Not insulted. That Not insulted. No. 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 I mean, uh, somebody in a good, healthy mindset is going to go, Thanks wow, for looking out. Wow, man. Yeah. yeah, actually, you know, and maybe I was having a shitty day. Maybe I am, you mm-hmm. know, thanks. Thank you. Uh, but no, I'm good. And they'll, they'll initiate a conversation. Somebody that recoils yeah. from that, they probably got something going on. But the thing of it is, you can't fix that for them. No, for sure. All, you, you can hold up a mirror, but at the end of the day, that person needs to take action. Mm-hmm. I've talked to, I don't know how many... Wives, husbands, parents, brothers, sisters, you can't love somebody enough to get them help. Nope. I don't care. You you can't. It doesn't matter what that relationship is, whether it's a friend, whether it's family, whether it's a spouse, whatever. You can't love somebody enough to get them to recover. I've said this. I I speak regularly at the the recovery center here Mm -hmm. in Medicine Hat, and that's one of my opening remarks is if you're here because you— your spouse wants you to be here. Your kids want you to be here. You're here to keep a job. You're here to appease friends. I said, I, I, I hope whatever I say today plants a seed for when you're actually ready to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But until you're here for you, mm-hmm. I'm talking to the fucking wind. For what? sure. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Rob, about, you know, businesses and companies and, and offering these programs and whatnot. Right. But compliance-based treatment Mm -hmm. or recovery is not going to be very successful. I mean, there's the odd person that it works for, but, you know, I go back to my own story. Mm -hmm. My first time I went to treatment, um, 
once again, I still didn't think I had a problem, but I needed to save my job and save my marriage mm-hmm. and save my whatever else, right? Well, trying to manage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just right? seen as a corporate affront. It's like, who are you to tell me that I have to go totally. and get counseling? Like, fuck that. Well, keep in mind that the meter of, of addiction is, you know, are you able to keep up doing what you're doing, you know, without it being a problem? <clears throat> so, you, you know, in addiction, you're scrambling to try and do it all yourself so that people, as well as yourself... Don't perceive yourself as an addict, right? Yeah. Because that's where that bad line uh, is drawn. The reality is, is like there's no one single right answer. For there's sure. no magic pill that's going to, you know, fix everyone and everything. Because if there was, it would be here, and this wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. You know, well, it's, it, it's not there, a it's not a simple solution. It's not a simple problem. If there was that pill, <laughs> I, I probably would have crushed them and snorted three of them. Yeah, yeah absolutely, right? <laughs> there wouldn't be any pills left in here. Well, and like when I, like I went, uh, I spent some time at um, South Country Treatment Center in Lethbridge. Yeah. And uh, there was a gal there by the name of Patty. Patty was uh, quite a bit older than I was at the time. And probably one of the toughest women I've ever dealt with in my life. But Patty changed my life. Um, but there was, there was one gentleman that really stood out to me when we were, when we were at the treatment center. Um, you know, like, like you were saying, like this guy, his family had put him through, I don't even know how many treatment centers, like spent hundreds of thousands of dollars forcing this guy to go to, you know, some of the best treatment centers, you know, known around North America. And he would spend his 30 days or 60 days at that treatment center, like his family made him do so that he can continue to get his allowance or whatever it worked out to be. And he could guarantee you, you know, within two weeks of walking away from any one of those treatment centers, he was completely back out there, you know, going hard. And, you know, that's, you know, when you realize, you know, your family can have the most money in the world and support Mm -hmm. you and, and love you to the end of time. But until you, as an addict, decide that you are an addict and you need to get help, no amount of, of money, time, love from anyone is is going to change that. I want to speak to a specific demographic. Um, you know, guys have their friends and they say, I love you, man. You know, I love you, man. Here's another beer. Or they do the man hug, the, the one arm thing, or they punch oh, each other in the arms. But, but men don't talk about their feelings. They just don't. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's, it's not in our wiring. Um, how do you... I didn't know I was allowed to until I went to treatment. Absolutely. I swear to God. I swear to God, until I went and spent 30 days at that treatment center, I didn't know that I was entitled to those feelings, let alone to share them. Yeah. No joke. Or how to even feel them. No, man. Or how yeah. to feel them. Yeah. But how do you, how do you explain to a guy who has a, a, a guy friend who he knows is in crisis, but I, I don't want to come across as a pansy or I don't want to come across as weak or I don't talk to my friend about feelings. I, I think that's it. I think that's what we're trying to do here. Right? Absolutely. Is, sure. is by us being vulnerable, it's, it's like giving permission, right? And it's not as simple as going, dude, tell me what you're feeling. You, it, it takes a certain level of vulnerability on, on our part or on the person reaching out's part, I guess. Right. Is that I, I found in my experience, I get way more result speaking to a newcomer by going, here's my story. Mm-hmm. And then it, it gives them permission to open up. But by just going, Hey, tell me how you feel. Yeah. I'm good. 
I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Right. That's what I right. hear all the time. Is I don't know. I'm good. I'm, so, I'm fine. So I think for, for based on, on my experience, and I mean, everybody might have a different experience, right? But it's, it's always come down to that real icebreaker is me, mm-hmm. is me being vulnerable, me telling my story, me yeah. talking about how I'm feeling. Right. Yeah. And then that breaks down that it, it really, it really does give per- permission and we've actually done it. Like when I think totally. about that community round table we had, right? Yeah, like yeah. You, you could see it happen, right? Mm-hmm. You could see one person, it was like fucking crickets in there for a little bit. Right. And then one person opened up yeah. and it was like, boom. And then it was like dominoes falling. Right. It was just, everybody had permission to be vulnerable and yeah. to tell their story. It's like when you're at the auction and nobody's bidding until <laughs> someone does. And then <laughs> and that the just fuck, starts boom, to flood, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like, like when I, you know, when I was out in the patch working away for years, you know, like, Man, there was nothing that could come between me and my crew. We were the the, the toughest five guys, oh, yeah. you know, in a, in a fifty feet radius, without a doubt, wherever we went, right? But at the same token, there was no, you know, you didn't tell another guy that you loved him and stuff like that. Um, but that's where you know this life and these conversations have changed. You know, like how do you how do you tell another man that you love him? You say, "I love you, man." You know, it, it, it's really that simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it becomes. But is that a catchphrase? Is it, I love you, man. Have, you know, here, have another beer. It or, can be. or, What's well, your guess, motivation? Yeah. What's your motivation? It's become a catchphrase uh, nowadays. Yeah. But to actually sit and honestly feel it without authenticity. It's, it, it's rare. But that's where action comes. You yeah, know, like absolutely. It's, you know, it's not, none of this is a, is a, none of this is a one-stop shop or a one conversation, you know, fix. And so. You know, the whole, you know, part of, you know, I love you, man, isn't just, you know, me saying to you, I love you, man, today. I mean, it's no different than nurturing any other relationship, you know, like when you, you know, when you were courting your wife or anything else like that. Well, it's a little different, but, <laughs> but I don't even know where to start with that one. Significantly. <laughs> but, That's episode 20. but, you know, it's, it's, it's keeping up that, keeping up that, the, the, the reality, the, the validity of, mm-hmm. of what you're saying and. And speaking truth, you know, walking, walking your walk. I mean, when someone says I'm fine, do you say, are you really like, I don't see you're fine. Yeah. Like, do you know what they call fine? Like I, it's been a little while since I've been in the, in in the circles, but you know what we used to say when, you know, somebody was fine, it uh, was fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And (laughs) a lot of times it was pretty on point. And, And that just did. I think, you know, it's really easy to ask the first question. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. It's, it's second nature, right? Well, it's, that's it's, where they, it's just a phrase. It's it where the insincere piece comes mm-hmm. in, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really easy to ask that question. It's part of day-to-day conversation, right? But when you get a response that you know isn't right, that's when the authenticity comes in. Because what do you say after that, right? What's the next prying question you ask? Well, because you, you can either say, are you really? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Or you don't seem fine to me. Exactly. Like, yeah. You yeah. don't seem fine to me. Oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. Really? Yeah. And, and, and how do you, how, how far do you push that until, okay, fine. I'll tell you that I'm having a shitty day just to get you off my fucking back. And so I can leave and continue my shitty life. But, you, but you'd be amazed that once you finally went, fuck it. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that I'm having a shitty day and I'm going to tell you how I really feel. You, all of a sudden you're like, whew, that, conversation. that felt really good. And guess what? Yeah. You just started that conversation. With reality, with truth for sure as the subject, you know, but, but they have to be willing to, 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 they have to, it's like anything. 
like it's like the pizza or the beer or like yeah. anything. They yeah. have to determine or detect your sincerity because if you're not sincere when you're saying, "Well, how are you really?" and you're you don't really care, they'll know that. So mm-hmm. you have to really push that sincerity. The fact that you actually do care how you do. Because most people, if I see you on the street, how you doing? I don't care how you're doing. I mean, that it's just that's just a phrase. It's what you say, right? How you doing? I'm good. And then you walk away. Well, don't I think, think about it. A big piece of that is like what Rick said earlier is by sharing a little bit about how you, even just how your day is going, it gives permission, right? Mm-hmm. To open up that. And I mean, we're all going to run into those people that are going to brush us off when we say that. And they're going to say, piss off. I don't want to talk to you today. And everybody's entitled to a bad day or not even talking to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But opening up that conversation and telling someone like we do it all the time. The other day, Rick was having a bad day and I texted him. He's short and he's doing this and that and pretty much said, fuck it. I'm having a bad day. The next day I said, let's get together and have a coffee. And within an hour and a half of us having a coffee, we were both having a bad day. And at the end of that, we're like, man, that feels really good to sit and have a chat like that. Like open, honest dialogue. And it was amazing. Rick saved my bacon the one day too. I was, you know, same thing. You know, I was all pissed off, balled up, dealing with a bunch of other life's frustrations and, you know, reach out to talk to somebody that, that I know is going to be truthful to me and talk to me in a, in a, in a true and sincere manner. That that doesn't mean they're going to tell me what I want to hear. That means that, that I understand that what they're going to tell me is, is genuine and truthful. For sure. And I think for me to get to that point, it was a, it was a learning portion and practicing for me. It was cause I'm a dude, right? Obviously yeah. we yeah. all are. Yeah. And what are we brought up to do? Yeah. Most men are brought up to fix. Yeah. Right? Suck it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Even you tell me your problem, I'm going to fix it. That's mm-hmm. why I'm listening. Yeah. And, and don't me, cry like, about it. You yeah. know, don't cry about it. And for uh, me, it was like really reframing that through some training on active listening skills and listening to understand not to fix or to respond to your problem, right? I just want to know what it's like, what you're going through, and then we can discuss it. And maybe we'll come to a conclusion or how we can tackle this thing, but maybe we won't. But at least we're going to open up that conversation and talk about it honestly. And that's the hugest game changer these days for me. It's a language. It's, you know, why should you look at it as being any less difficult than trying to learn French or Spanish or any other language in the world? You know, you're... You know, you're you're going on a trip to Mexico for a few weeks. So you you try and brush up on some Spanish before you head down there. Banyo, dos cerveza por favor. I knew. <laughs> I, I only know cinco cerveza por favor, and that was, you know. But at the same, I only time, know cerveza. I, I don't know any of the other. There was words. no limit Banyo? on this one, yeah. Dave. Yeah. We might cerveza, have a problem. Cerveza, keep them coming, keep them cold. Yeah, but right? but but the reality is, is you know, why would why would you put any less um, validity or effort into learning a language for a loved one. And that's what this is. You know, that's what, that's what these conversations are is, is learning a language for a loved one. Um, in, in the same context that you would, you know, learn, you know, Spanish or French to, to head on a holiday. I think it kind of, um, segues well when we're talking about opening up to people, is it easier to open up to strangers when you have a problem and, and you have these people that are coming, loved ones that are coming at you and saying, I, I, how are you? And you're saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. But deep inside, you know, you're not fine, but you don't want to talk to your mom or you don't want to talk to your wife or you don't want to talk to your best friend who you, you bump shoulder. Is it easier to, to reach out to a, like you guys? I mean, it, 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 it perfectly segues as we come to the wrap of this show to say the guys at our collective journey are men who want 
to listen to your problems and who do give a shit, even if they don't know who you are, is it easier to open up to a stranger who actually wants to listen to you? I think a big piece is opening up to somebody who gets it, who doesn't judge. Right. Cause I mean, you know, no disrespect to you, but even, even your ignorance today, right. With, and I don't mean ignorance is a, no, a, I a negative connectivity, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, just, yeah. it's just not knowing, right? And I might give bad advice to somebody. Well, it, my perception is that it's all relative. Yeah. It, it's it's all relative. At the end of the day, we're all just trying to help one another as human beings um, enjoy the beauty of what life is. Um you know, when an addict was, you know, in recovery, they find other addicts to try or, or in addiction, they, they, they find other addicts and whatnot to be able to try and keep that going. Generally, when an addict finds recovery, you know, when they experience that feeling, that that emotion, they want to share that with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no one size fits all in all of this. I feel like every single step of this is relative. If sure. I... If I know somebody that's having a problem and I don't have the strength, I'm, I'm using the generic I, not necessarily me, although, yeah, there, yeah, some of that. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how to broach the subject. Is OCJ there for me? Is our collective journey there for me to say, I have a friend who's in crisis. How do I, how do I go about this? Do I reach out to you? 100%. Man. 100%. Yeah. We're a, we're a phone call, a click, a direct message, whatever away. Right. And we're not just there for, we talked about this, right? Like so many people are at home suffering in silence or they don't think they have a problem or, or, you know, like we talked about earlier, somebody's family member thinks somebody has a problem. And like you said, they don't know how to approach that subject. Fuck, we're there for any conversation around anything to do with addiction and mental health. Cause it's tough conversations to have. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in my experience and in my life, nobody had those conversations with me. Nope. Nobody came out and said hindsight though, once I got into recovery, they're like, oh, we knew something was going mm-hmm. on. Well, why didn't you fucking say something, <laughs> right? Yeah, thanks for be, letting me know. Don't be afraid to mention that, right? Yeah. We talk about that too. When, you know, my journey took me to suicide attempts twice. And if somebody would have stepped in and asked me, are you thinking about having, are you thinking about taking your life? Are you thinking about suicide? Fuck, maybe that would have changed that trajectory. I don't know for sure, but it probably wouldn't have hurt, right? And that's the, that's the thing, right? If you're not really sure, and you said earlier about maybe I give someone the wrong advice, that's the perfect time to to look into contacting us or something, right? There's no such thing as bad advice, I don't think. Not if you're opening up these conversations. That's the biggest mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. Open up that conversation. And we always say it too, right? We're not subject matter experts on everything, mm-hmm. but we'll find somebody who is. Yeah, right. And, and that, that's that, why we're here. That's a big piece that I think um, that we we try to be very careful at with at uh, OCJ is is we know we know what we know and we know what we don't know. Right. And, and we've got no, no ego attached to, to facilitating a conversation with somebody else. Right. Yeah. But we're there to have that maybe initial conversation and let's, let us help you navigate to where you need to go. Cause we, you know, we don't know all the answers. Like I'm, I joke about it constantly. I'm a subject matter <laughs> in, a few, in a few things, not many. Right. But, um, but you represent the source of the problem. And from there, you have the resources to move them in the right direction. We've built a pretty solid network of, of both people simply lived experience and professionals and people with lived experience who are professionals, right? And I think there's a, a different layer of credibility that comes with some lived experience. And we can, we can help you get where you need to go to get the help you need. 
this has been a bit of a different show than what you're used to because, or what you've done in the past, because we're always talking to the, uh, we're always talking to the the people that have the addictions, the people that have the problems. But I think it's just as important in this episode to talk to the people who don't have the problems, but possibly know somebody who does or doesn't know how to help that person and are desperate. Like mm-hmm. I, I know that helpless feeling mm-hmm. where I don't know what to do. And it's, and I mean, you guys, I didn't know you guys back when this was a problem, but it's nice to know that, that you guys are there to even help me if I have a, if mm-hmm. I need you to help someone else, how do I reach out to you guys? What an email, give me the email address. Give me a phone. How do I reach out? The Facebook page, our collective journey, right? Yeah, absolutely. We have an email address that you, anybody can email us at any time at help at our collective journey.ca. And that'll come, you know, directly to us. And we have the Instagram page. We have direct message. We have a phone number listed on our website. You can phone that. There's many ways. There's just the biggest step is to push that button and Mm -hmm. and reach out. Right. We talk about that in recovery is, you know, if somebody's leading towards a relapse, they have all the supports in place. Um, The hardest thing to do is pick up that phone and phone somebody. Right. And, And it could seem like it's 500 pounds, that phone. But in this instance, you know, it's the easiest slash hardest thing to do is phone for help or phone for some suggestions. But, oh my gosh, in our experience, man, if you can make that phone call, it's a game changer. It's, it, it can be life-changing for sure, right? There's never a wrong time to phone us, I don't think, or contact us, even if it's not as serious as you might think it is, especially with loved ones, right? Somebody doesn't come home one night, oh my gosh, we better send up the five alarm Amber Alert and this and that, right? Maybe it's not that extreme in the end, give somebody a call, right? If it's addiction, you think somebody has a problem with addiction or, or they're going off the rails in some, you know, mental health arena of their life or whatever that looks like, give us a call. What's, what's the worst case scenario of being wrong? That's the, that's the biggest thing. Making that phone call and, and not needing to make that phone call is a lot better than not making the phone call and having a life to regret. You know, you know, it keeps bouncing in my head as we talk and as, as, as Ryan's talking and stuff, you know, you know, I sit and think about, you think about like who wants to be a millionaire, the video or the, the game show and stuff like that. You know, people that are sitting there playing for uh, a, a great amount of money and, you know, they're, they're, they're given a couple of opportunities of, uh, you know, ways out. And, and the one opportunity is, is, is to phone a friend. Yeah. It, 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 it's not phone an expert, you know, it's, uh, it phone a friend. It, to me, that's what, you know, OCJ is, is doing and is, you know, done and continuing to do is, you know, you, you guys are that, that friend to phone. It's, it, and, and instead of people playing for, you know, a million dollars, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, you know, they're playing for their life. Yeah. And so to, to have a friend on the other end of that, that phone call or that computer or that email, um, like OCJ, I think is, is uh, an indispensable resource that, that this community needs and I think um, you know the world needs more of uh, these conversations and these sort of friends Ryan Rick Rob I love you guys love you man thanks <laughs> for coming I love in today. you man <laughs> it's been amazing it has been I love sitting around talking with you characters right? it's great From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, 
Rick, Ryan, and Damien are here for you. Contact Our Collective Journey on Facebook at Our Collective Journey or on the web at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by Poncho Parker. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Check out this and our other great podcasts at pymedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.